Charles here. Welcome to the 68th episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. This podcast episode was recorded on the sacred lands of the indigenous people of the Kikapu, Peoria, Kaskaskia, and Miami. On today's episode of the podcast, I talk with Dr. Whitney Jordan Adams as a part of the big rhetorical podcast, Emerging Scholar Series. My heart sank when I saw that picture, and I it, it wasn't necessarily surprised, though, and that's bad, too, right? Uh, but it, the, it's, it was there, and we need to keep doing the work that we're doing, I guess. I tell my students that Yes, you're an undergrad, but you can you can be involved in the community and you too are a rhetorician and you too can impart change. You'll hear more from Dr. Adams in a bit. But first, I want to mention that I hope everyone who attended the Four C's conference this year enjoyed themselves. I know I did, but I also know things were not perfect. There are a lot of things to consider when transitioning to a virtual platform. I want to extend my gratitude, though, to the conference chair and organizers for their hard work in making 4Cs happen. And the big rhetorical podcast cannot wait to see you in Chicago in 2022. The big rhetorical podcast, Emerging Scholar Series, is an inclusive space specifically designed to highlight the life and career work of graduate students and other academics who enjoy discussing the development of their scholarship, their pedagogy, and their service to the fields and disciplines of rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication. The Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Series serves as a glimpse into the variety of positionalities and personalities currently working in and defining these areas, as well as a way to track specific disciplinary themes as they manifest throughout time. And don't forget that this season, we introduced the big rhetorical podcast, Emerging Scholar Award. More on that later. So far this season, we have heard from scholars from all over including Christian Brothers University, Iowa State University, the University of Colorado, Florida International University, and the University of Delaware. Today, we talk to Dr. Whitney Jordan Adams, visiting assistant professor of English Rhetoric and Writing at Barry College. Whitney Jordan Adams is a 2020 PhD graduate from Clemson University's Interdisciplinary Rhetorics, Communication, and Information Design Program. Her dissertation, A Rhetoric of Resentment, Dismantling White Supremacy Through Definition, Scholarship, and Action, examines the role of resentment in white supremacy and how this rhetoric can be dismantled not only through scholarship, but also through positive pedagogical disturbance, rhetorical listening, and action in the classroom and community. Currently, Whitney is a visiting assistant professor of English, rhetoric, and writing at Barry College in Rome, Georgia. At Barry, Whitney is invested in diversity and equity initiatives and will be teaching in spring 2021 a class where Barry students are reading, writing, and engaging in rhetoric for social change. Whitney has also taught at the University de Versailles in Versailles, France, and at the Harbin Institute of Technology in Harbin, China. In her free time, Whitney enjoys playing golf and traveling. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Whitney Jordan Adams. What's your name? Who are you? Okay. What's your title? Where are you? Uh, what's your role there? Things like that. Okay. So my name is Whitney Adams and I usually go by my full name if I, uh, if I publish or something, uh, which is Whitney Jordan Adams. And let's see, 
that's my name. Uh, I'm at Barry College, which is in Rome, Georgia. It's a very small uh, private liberal arts college <clears throat> in Rome. I never thought I would live in Rome, Georgia, but I'm here and I'm in a visiting line. So I was really lucky to get a job during the pandemic. And well, we all know the job market and the, the, um, the horrors of the job market, I guess I should say, but uh, I was just really fortunate to get this job during the pandemic. And I'm a visiting assistant professor of, um, of rhetoric, writing, uh, English rhetoric and writing is the official title. Excellent. So what kind of classes do you teach there? So last semester I had maybe a couple of weeks to prepare for the semester and, you know, move and find a place to live. And moving during the pandemic was quite difficult. And, and, you know, just after being on the market and kind of feeling very stressed and kind of exhausted and mentally kind of having to refocus and kind of build and rebuild confidence because the job market can be so stressful. But um, I, so last uh, semester I taught two sections of, uh, I was basically like a rhetoric uh, of travel and tourism class. And so uh, we also looked at, at literature and different texts as well, but it was on travel and tourism. And then I taught first year writing as well. So I had two sections of the travel and tourism and then one section of first year writing, but the travel and tourism, I I did a lot with that. I was able to kind of build on the pandemic uh, and talk about some issues in terms of equity and access and things like that. And then also connected to travel and tourism, I was able to kind of look at different kind of contested sites that people might travel to within the South. So I looked at plantations and, you know, why people traveled to them, like how kind of recently there's been some efforts to kind of uh, be real about the plantations and what has what occurred there and things like that. And so I was kind of able to frame the class in a way that was maybe more accessible for students and then kind of not sneak in, but kind of, you know, get some uh, difficult um, material in there as well to kind of get them to think about travel and tourism differently and what it might look like for different people or for different groups of people, things like that. That sounds like a really cool class, not just because I'm a Southerner, but I think that it's really awesome that you're also working in some of your scholarly interests into your classes, right? This mm -hmm. idea of like uh, the South reckoning with their identity and, and spatial rhetorics and white supremacy specifically, right? So I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, I know you're not from Rome, Georgia, but you are you from the South? I, th I, thought, I think you are, but I'm not sure. Well, I'm from West Virginia, so okay. West Virginia, I don't consider it the South. It's well, it's Appalachia, but uh -huh. it's connected to the South. Um, well, what West Virginia left Virginia? Uh, we we fought for the Union and the Civil War, and a lot of people don't realize that. And West Virginia is kind of its own unique uh, area, and so people kind of make fun of West Virginia, and they think we're kind of backwards and uh. Southern and redneck and those different things. And so we're kind of, I think, connected to some of those stereotypes of the South, but we're, it's kind of our own, we're in our own place, if that makes I, sense. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. I mean, some shared cultural stuff, values and things like that, um, for sure. So that's really interesting. So you grew up in West Virginia. What city did you grow up in? In Charleston. Uh, Charleston, which West Virginia. Okay, cool. Yeah, it's the capital. And uh, so my my father worked for a coal company. Uh, he was in uh, finance. He was a CPA. And so growing up, it was interesting because I would I remember strikes and different things that the coal miners would uh, would, would come into the city. And so uh, it, it was just interesting growing up. Uh, my mom's side they my her her grandparents or her parents didn't go to college my dad's side they did and so um my mom's side is from west virginia my dad is from ohio and so growing up it was kind of interesting to see uh just kind of that kind of dichotomy between you know coal is such a big thing in west virginia and so i was kind of always like well why are they striking what's going on and it's just an interesting like way of life there and how people still view certain 
things that take place in West Virginia. There's it's a beautiful state, but there's a lot of um, hardships there and economic hardships and with the kind of the remnants left over from coal mining and things like that. So, um, yeah, I grew up in Charleston and then actually um, my family kind of relocated to uh, South Carolina, where I actually finished high school. And uh, then sadly, my father passed away. That was kind of a formative time for me. And then I went straight to college and was kind of trying to figure out life out. And then, um, yeah, yeah, that's rough. (laughs) Yeah, it was definitely difficult. But kind of when I think about how I wound up at Clemson, when you look back at your life, um, so far, things have kind of all kind of fit together uh, yeah. oddly. <laughs> so yeah, this is a little bit about my background, like so where I grew up. Yeah. So when you moved to South Carolina, was it like, well, I guess I'm going to go to the University of South Carolina, or what drew you to Columbia, and what made you get interested in English? It may have been before, or language and literature. It may have been before college, obviously. But how did you get on that path as an undergraduate? Well, so, so growing up, my mom's background is psychology, and so I would always read her books. You know, she would have different – she was always a reader, and so I was – she would always buy different books, philosoph- different things for me, philosophy, psychology. And so I was always a reader. <clears throat> and actually, I went to Wittenberg University in Ohio for about three years, and that was – I was a biology major there, and having lost my father, I was still kind of – you know, in not a a great place mentally because, you know, college is so formative and after having lost, um, and I'm an only child as well, so I was really close to my dad. And so I ended up transferring to University of South Carolina from Wittenberg. So Wittenberg is in Ohio. It's in Springfield, Ohio. It's a a liberal arts college. And so I was shocked when I, well, not shocked. I don't know if that's the best word, but I was it was kind of strange to go from a private liberal arts college in Ohio to the, to the University of South Carolina in Columbia. So I imagine, I imagine I've been to Columbia once and yeah. it was an awesome place. I really enjoyed it. Um, but I imagine that that was, was quite different. Was, so you got, go yeah. ahead. Sorry. Oh no, no. It's, um, and so I, I, I made that move to kind of be closer to my family. Uh, mm-hmm. and that's when I switched, my, uh, switched, switched my major. So I switched from biology to English. And so that kind of started the whole trajectory. (laughs) That's super cool. So you graduate with your bachelor's degree. um, And there's a little bit of time before you went back for your MA, like most of us, right? Uh, What what were you doing before you went back for your MA? And what made you decide to go to the College of Charleston? And focus in English literature. So, uh, okay, so I went, I graduated, and so my I switched my major, and it took me like an extra year to graduate. So I graduated in December of 07, and so I actually went to law school for a year, uh, and I went to a law school that, uh, I went there for different reasons, not the best reasons looking back, but I was kind of a different person. Been there. Yeah. You know, like. (laughs) I think we've all been there, right? (laughs) The things we do, right? Um, And so anyways, so I was a different person then. I wasn't as confident as I am now. I was um, more shy and introverted. And uh, I felt very uncomfortable in law school. I felt very shy and like nervous. I didn't, I wasn't as confident as I am now. And so. I kind of had this feeling, okay, well, I need to <clears throat> to leave law school. And I just kind of did something completely random. And so I left law school and went to Korea um, to teach English, which a lot of people do. Uh, I actually just randomly was in law school. You know, everyone has their laptops in law school uh, more so. It was Even back then, it was uh, laptops weren't as common, but that's just what you had in law school. And so, you know, you're taking notes. And I just saw an ad to like teach English in Korea and something just was like, you need to do this or like do something crazy or different, you know? And so I just left. Um, My family wasn't very happy, but I, I just left and I went there to Korea kind of randomly, like just, I'm going to do this. And uh, that was really 
a great experience. It helped me to be more confident and do something on my own and like travel somewhere and rely on myself. And it was just a great experience. Then I worked a little while in Taiwan for that summer. And then the goal was for me to go back to law school and finish. Um, but then at that, and I still love, I'm a rhetorician now, but I still appreciate and love literature. But at that point, I wanted to do the PhD in literature and College of Charleston, it's a beautiful um, city. And even at this early stage, kind of in my career, I was looking at Faulkner and different things. And I was still kind of looking at, or beginning, I should say, to look at race and race relations um, and kind of the South has this place I wanted to study. And and I noticed some different things at University of South Carolina, just how people use symbols and how um, fraternity life there is kind of connected to the South. Uh, I I have a book chapter we can maybe talk about later that looks at a fraternity, but I'm just always been very observant. And so I was kind of looking even in my undergrad, like why people do certain things or like the Confederate battle flag and things like this. And so, uh, and like I said, I've always enjoyed reading Faulkner and other um, readers or excuse me, writers of the South. And so College of Charleston seemed like a logical place. It was close to my family. I had just been away for over a year. And so I uh, just applied there. And so I, I moved home and I went to College of Charleston. And at that point, the goal was to get my master's and then do the PhD in literature. So then I spent there, I was there for two years. So I spent two years doing my master's there. So a lot there to <laughs> unpack. Yeah. But I think I've got a plan. I've been taking some notes as you've been talking. Let's start with Korea. As someone who looked into teaching overseas when I came out of my MA program, and I hope I can say this on my own podcast, didn't have the balls to do it, you know, didn't actually click apply. Kudos to you. And I think the reason I didn't apply was because I know this, I should say, I know the reason I didn't apply is because I wasn't invested in going and learning about the cultural culture, <laughs> right? Which is, which is essential if you're going to do this. Um, and so I wondered if maybe you could talk about that in terms of your own experience teaching overseas. Yeah. And so I, you know, that was my first time really going overseas, I guess. And I went by myself. And so I just had to go in really with an open mind. And so I, I did a lot of like home stays and a temple stays. And I tried to really immerse myself in the culture. And it was, uh, it was an interesting experience. And so I, I love the culture and I love, I, I hope I can go back to Korea. A, a few things that we see in our own culture as well. Um, sometimes like in my school, men would, I guess I can say this. So, uh, sometimes like the male teachers would be held to a little bit of a different standard. They might be paid a little more. And that's kind of, it's changing now in Korea. Um, same thing with like LGBTQIA rights and things like that in Korea. Um, a lot of that is happening um, more recently or there's been some changes, but um, but overall, like I did really immerse myself in the culture, like you uh, bowing to people and it's very respectful culture. And I really learned a lot. I tried my best to learn some of the language. It was difficult. But, um, but yeah, I guess it, the thing that I did kind of struggle with um, was kind of seeing the male teachers be held to a little bit of a different standard. You know, they could maybe show up a little late or um, maybe drink the night before or something, you know, and that there's, it's just kind of a cultural thing, but we still have some of that in our society, uh, definitely here in the U S as well. But, um, but overall it was just an amazing experience, um, for sure. Yeah, we do. And we need to stop it out. I was, uh, <laughs> I was, I cited, I was, I was writing a historical part for my disc. I cited Holbrook last night. All right. <laughs> last night. So <laughs> Let's uh, let's let's end the gender disparity gap yes. in, in our country. <laughs> this small independent podcast is going to do its part for sure. Yes. <laughs> so okay, so the 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 hardcore. Uh, well, we're both hardcore rhetoricians. I know that I shouldn't say that, but <laughs> the rhetoricians less interested in literature they can zone out for a moment so you're a Faulkner fan and that's uh one of my favorite authors so I just want to spend a minute on Faulkner uh so 
what got you interested in Faulkner and Americanism? And what were you, what did, I guess you kind of wrote your MA thesis on that kind of stuff in the South? Yes. And so at College of Charleston, we, we take comprehensive exams. Uh, and so that kind of is the whole, um, we don't really have to do a thesis, yeah. but I guess the longer papers I wrote were looking at, uh, I chose to, to focus on, that was a long time ago, but mostly Faulkner. And uh, I also, you know, like T.S. Eliot and um, I used to be a big Joyce fan, but that's, um, has kind of changed. But anyway, so Faulkner, um, yeah, I guess going back, I remember As I Lay Dying was one of the first books that kind of had an impact. Same. Same. Yeah. yeah, that was my introduction, like 11th grade uh, English class, Faulkner. Yes. Uh, and so, so yeah, so um, As I Lay Dying was, was really a formative text for me. I remember reading it several times. And like you said, you read it in 11th grade, right, for you? Yeah. 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 It was 11th grade for me. And so I don't and I know Faulkner, you know, people have different views on Faulkner. I'm actually teaching uh, using James Baldwin in my confronting racism class I'm teaching this semester. And I was actually just over um, over the break. I was like rereading some of Baldwin's views on James Baldwin and his views on Faulkner. And so I know people think about Faulkner differently and there's different ways to approach him. But I, I have just, and I acknowledge all those different viewpoints and, and different ways to approach and view Faulkner. Uh, but since as I, well, as I was reading, um, as I lay down, I think there's some hidden themes in there, especially with um, with how he approaches the idea of like abortion and different things like that. And I think that you can definitely take, uh, I, I think that you can unpack Faulkner and, and see some of um, kind of maybe different ways of how he was looking at things, which maybe was kind of um, sometimes a step forward for the time period. And I know people might disagree with that, but um, and then thinking about like the sound and the fury and Absalom, Absalom, I've just uh, have always been a Faulkner fan, but I do acknowledge, you know, that there's other sides to Faulkner. So yeah, definitely, definitely. But, and one of but, but in exploring all of those different sides and acknowledging that history, you get to study some James Baldwin and that's excellent. Like, I think, I don't know if it's just me or I'm just disconnected and, but I feel like James Baldwin's work is kind of being like reclaimed in the last like decade or so, maybe with the rise of social media, because I don't know, maybe I'm just making that up and I'll cut this out when I'm listening <laughs> to the audio, <laughs> but he's such an important figure and we know that. And he has been for so long um, and continues to be. Okay. So, I think that there are obviously uh, natural connections between your um, affinity for Southern literature and the work that you've done in your dissertation and the work that you do in your scholarship now as a rhetorician. I'm going to read your dissertation title just for the heck of it, because it's something I do. It's called Resentment Rhetorics, Dismantling White Supremacy and Hedge... I can never say that word. Dismantling White Supremacy and Hegemony Through... Definition, scholarship, and action. Okay, I got through it. It's an excellent dissertation title. What was your dissertation about? So, oh, and just so you feel better, I had to practice saying, now I won't be able to say it, hegemony. <laughs> hegemony. <laughs> Hege hegemonic, I know. Um, my my mom was, was I would um, talk to her about it. She's like, if you say that word one more time, I'm going to like have a breakdown. <laughs> so I was just like, it's hegemonic. Hegemonic, um, I can do. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So I always like say, sometimes I, I say stuff wrong or, but I don't, you know, we're, we're human. So that's funny. Um, yeah. So my dissertation. And so when I started, so I get really excited about my dissertation. And so uh, thankfully it's finished, but so at College of Charleston, I, my mentor, Dr. Warnick, he actually is the one that kind of um, introduced me to rhetoric. I mean, obviously we all know or I, we all kind of have been around rhetoric, you know, but we just don't, don't really know it until you're like, get a PhD in it. Right. Uh, that's, that's what I've found from talking to grad students. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. And so like rhetoric is kind of this thing that we always, that's with us. And then we don't realize that we were using it or that we don't realize it's, it's power or it's influence. And so Dr. Warnick was like, you know, you should really think about doing a PhD in rhetoric. And there's this amazing program at Clemson and 
yeah, so I went to Clemson and, you know, I was, I was kind of embarrassed because I came from a literature background and, you know, I was kind of catching up on a lot of foundational readings, but I did it. And, you know, I'm still reading and learning every day, but uh, so I got to Clemson and I knew I wanted to do <clears throat> something with like Southern rhetoric or something. And um, the, the Confederate battle flag has always figured kind of into my work. And so it kind of just really, the dissertation created itself over four years. And I didn't really know exactly when I got there what I wanted to do. Like some of my colleagues, they knew exactly. They're like, this is what I'm going to do. And I've been studying rhetoric in my master's and like, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And I didn't do, I didn't approach it that way. Um, but everything kind of fell into place. And so, like I said, I originally started with just the Confederate battle flag as a symbol. And so that kind of then went into different areas. And so I, uh, looking at fraternities and kind of their reproduction of antebellum kind of, uh, not fetish. I, well, I, I, it's kind of like a fetish, I guess, but you know, antebellum, um, dances and things like that. And so that's kind of one aspect, which, you know, was difficult kind of, because I had an anthropologist on my committee. And so, you know, studying the South, I, you know, it's, it was difficult to kind of approach, um, especially with historical things with the flag, there's been different iterations of the flag and different things. And so, I really had to read a lot of historical things too, and uh, or not things, but documents, um, all of that. And so that was kind of one aspect. And so I started building on that. And then I kind of became really interested in like white supremacy. And so that is kind of where my research now is all focused on. And so I looked at extreme groups. And so what's interesting, I guess the connection is that a lot of these extreme groups are like extreme alt-right groups. They still use like the, the Confederate battle flag or other kind of interesting symbols or things from the South. <clears throat> and, <clears throat> excuse me. And so, yeah. And so it's, my, I, I start out. And so chapter one, uh, now I have to think back as to what I what I did specifically. <laughs> while, while you're thinking, I actually have a question, if, yeah. if it's okay. Sure. So, like, am I right? Can you correct me about this? So <laughs> there's also something, like, super – I don't know if chirotic is actually the right best, best, best word here. But there's something chirotic, it seems, about um, your project, obviously, in our culture. But also in terms of, like, your physical space in South Carolina, because am I – the, the Confederate flag flew over the Capitol in South Carolina until I believe it was recently and they were the last state to do so. Right. Right. Well, it was it was over the state house dome. Yes. And so state house. Dome. Okay. Uh, and so my my anthropologist was very quick, um, you know, because he, he was always like, you have to be correct on everything. So I'm like, OK, but it was over the, the dome. And then so it flew on the grounds. Um, and then I can't speak necessarily for like Mississippi. There's still like other states that it's uh, connected to and like on the flags and things like that. And so, well, and so it's funny you brought that up because it is like my, my place and where I was living was really formative. And so I talk in my dissertation and it's uh, hard to to bring it up and it's not, you know, like a, a positive topic or anything like that, but the, 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 the attack on the church, on the um, the uh, church in Charleston. And it's, it's hard for me to even talk about, I was living in Charleston at the time. And I remember, and I think I forgot to mention, but I taught at College of Charleston for three years between yeah. my master's and my PhD. And so I was actually grading AP exams. I don't know if you're familiar with the grading the AP exams. Grader. Talking to a grader. <laughs> um, oh my gosh, that's so funny. Um, well, we could chat about that later, and um, hopefully, yes. yeah. But uh, so I flew, I flew back from the AP reading when it was still in person, and that uh, I remember President Obama had flown into Charleston that day. Of uh, it was just surreal. I, 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 it's hard to like I said even to talk about, it. and so I remember kind of going to the different events in Charleston and kind of trying to make sense of what had happened. And and this was before I even knew I was going to get a PhD, right? And so I just kind of 
was was there for that in Charleston. And then Charleston, you know, it's 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 its own place too in terms of the markets and how they haven't really dealt with history there. And it's um so all of that. So that was kind of, you know, I, I talked about that in my dissertation as well. Um Wait, so now I think I've lost track. What were we? <laughs> That's okay. I think I, it, that was my fault. I derailed us. More after this. Would you like to join Charles in the Big Rhetorical Podcast? The podcast is booking for next season now. The Big Rhetorical Podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making in rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication, as well as adjacent fields. Do you have a new book coming out? Are you hitting the job market this cycle? The Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project with an emphasis on inclusivity in localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. Make sure to check out our back catalog of episodes as well as listen to our new podcast each week wherever you listen to your podcast. If you have questions about The Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find The Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at The Big Ret. Follow the podcast on Facebook or email us at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. Welcome back. We were talking about your dissertation. What were some of the places that you looked at? What was some of your analysis? Uh, things like that. Yeah, and so I think starting out, you know, I was using South Carolina for my time in, in Charleston. And then, like we talked about, the the flag flying on the grounds of the State House and things like that. And, uh, and just my time in Columbia and kind of observing some of the behavior of the students there. And like I said, this was well before I knew I was going to get my PhD. Um, and so kind of, I guess that kind of led into the dissertation as a whole. And so in chapter one, it's kind of, I guess, maybe non-traditional. Uh, I kind of, I, I take recent events that happened uh, while I was writing the dissertation, different events that kind of solidified, excuse me, why my research was important. And so I just, I looked at like different events, like in California, students were, you know, flying the Confederate battle flag and, you know, they were hosting parties with, uh, you know, doing the the white supremacy um fist and different things and and so it was interesting because you have this symbol and it kind of was in the south but it's kind of like shifted you know if you think about like ecology rhetorical ecologies or things like that it's the symbol had was kind of everywhere so it was in california um i've seen the symbol traveling overseas of the battle flag and so but anyway so chapter one i kind of look at events uh, different events like in Tennessee as well, like white supremacists using Tennessee um, as a, like a hosting place for their events because taxpayers are, they have to provide security. It's a state law there. And so, yeah, it's super interesting. And so chapter one, I guess, was kind of non-traditional in the sense that I just kind of looked at all of these events that kind of solidified why my research um, needed to happen. Uh, and then I, then I look at kind of the Confederate battle flag in detail and how groups use that. I look at a fraternity, uh, Kappa Alpha, and then um, just kind of provide some background <clears throat> on the flag. And then chapter three, I I look at, yeah. And so I look at an alt-right text. Uh, it's called the alt-right, a fair hearing, the alt-right uh, in, the, in the words of its members and leaders. And so I I probably just could have done the dissertation on this book, but I take this recent publication by the alt-right and I basically just analyze it uh, rhetorically. And people were like, why would you do that? Or is that providing a platform? And I said, no, because, you know, these books are being published and it's uh, insidious rhetoric. Um, I don't consider it, it's not my definition of rhetoric, but it, it's we need to be aware of how these groups are gathering and garnering followers and like how they're still, you know, how they're like publishing these books. And uh, the book was published by an alt-right publishing company in, uh, it wasn't Sweden. It was uh, 
Norway, I believe, or the, but there's uh, in that region, there's different like pockets of publishing houses and groups uh, that are part of the alt-right. Uh, and so it's interesting because, you know, I uh, making these connections between these things, it was kind of a lot to do in the dissertation. But then I, I look at this uh, recent text by the alt-right and then kind of shifting from that, I look at um, groups. So I look at the idea of the community retour and the idea that you can be a rhetorician without, uh, which I think is pretty common, you can be a rhetorician without a college degree or without a PhD. Um, and you can promote positive change through through change as well. And so I look at, and some people are like, this is really idealistic, but I wanted to cover it um, anyways. And so I look at at men, specifically men that have left like neo-Nazi groups or that have left the KKK. And there's one particular um, TM Garrett. And so he's actually a tattoo artist that covers up uh, past tattoos for free uh, from groups. That is so cool. That is such a cool idea. Yeah. And so he's definitely like a retort. Like he goes around, um, give speaking engagements and things like that. And so, you know, I provide a lot of um, evidence as well, like like how men specifically get entrenched in these groups. Sometimes, you know, they're, there's different reasons, but I, different maybe psychological reasons, or they were, they're just hate bad people, or they're grown up, this, you know, they were taught these things. But sometimes the, there's psychological aspects to why people join these groups. But for this particular man, he actually met um, a, a, a man from Turkey and they struck up a friendship. And so then he just kind of had this awakening. And obviously this is rare, like a lot of people involved in that never get out of it. But I thought it was really worthy to tell people about this this man. And so he, like I said, and when you think about rhetoric and tattoos, like tattoos are very much a part of um identification and things like that. And so for him to kind of cover these up, I thought that was really interesting rhetorically and just something worthwhile that we should know about. And so, and again, not to kind of be idealistic or like we can change people. It's that this one person did change and that we need to know about it, if that makes sense. And so, um, and then drawing on that, I, I tell my students that, yes, you're an undergrad, but you can, you can be involved in the community and you too are a rhetorician and you too can impart change. So, yeah, so it was kind of a lot of different things in the dissertation, but I have a lot of of work now that I can build on for, I guess, future publications. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I want to say so that that doesn't sound like I'm discrediting your work anyway. This sounds like an amazing dissertation and I'm going to seek it out and, and, and try to try to read read at least parts of it because it connects to the work that I'm doing. So I want to let you know that this sounds like really awesome work. And and I would say you definitely have a foundation. And obviously I'm going to ask you about um, the capital because uh, that obviously plays an integral role. Well, I shouldn't speak for you. I'm so sorry, Whitney, <laughs> but I would say like, obviously you're going to, that's going to play an inter like a part in your research going forward because our capital experienced white supremacy was overrun by white supremacists right. carrying the the confederate battle flag so that's actually my question is as a, as a scholar who has studied this artifact what was it like what was your response to seeing it inside the american capital two weeks ago well i i saw that as very treasonous uh i guess that's the right word right uh, it's if and this was difficult too, like with my dissertation because of historians and all, you know, it's the, the flag itself is, is such a contested symbol. But when I saw those pictures, you know, that's, you know, we have the American flag uh, and that's, you know, people obviously have different views about that as well. But to me, it's like, uh, that was kind of an act. It was an act of treason, I think, to bring that into the Capitol. Uh, and, I hated to see it. it. It still solidifies why my research is important and why we have to keep going and keep trying to educate uh, students and, and keep doing the work that we're doing. Um, and it was just, it was, my heart sank when I saw that picture. And 
I wasn't necessarily surprised though, and that's bad too, right? Uh, but it, the, it's it was there, and we need to keep doing the work that we're doing, I guess, if that answers the question. Um, yeah, I think it does. So one of the things I know about my relationship to the Confederate flag is um, I don't or the Confederacy is like I don't really think I understood how um, how fractured our nation was and what that really meant until I got into high school or like right after high school, because I was educated in public schools in the Deep South. Right. And so there's a there's definitely a perception you know, that, 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 I mean, I'm, <laughs> my fourth grade teacher, like, continues to share white supremacist memes on Facebook, you know what I mean? And, like, yeah. my youth counselor from my church when I was a kid continues to share white supremacist memes. So there's, it's, it's obviously, we know that it's systemic and embedded in the culture um, there. And so I mentioned that, you know, it was when I was older, when I kind of, kind of understanding of okay this is wrong these people are traitors like the potential you know robert e lee connection as a family member you know is a bad thing right it's not a good thing it's not something you like brag about in the in the middle school lunchroom so this is a long way to get to my question i apologize Uh, but i want to talk about your work with looking at fraternities and and uh, maybe sororities it may be more fraternities here so can you tell us what spiked your interest there and what are your main arguments surrounding their practices and their culture so when i was at school in ohio i was involved in in greek life but it was very different and so my father was uh, was in a fraternity. He but he he went to school at West Virginia University. So in in the seventies and so um, Greek life was well, at at Wittenberg. You know we would have parties and uh, obviously that you know make friends. We would hang out with other people. It wasn't anything that I really like. Like this is my identity. It was just more of like a social group, um, if that makes sense. And so. When I transferred um, schools, I was blown away by the system of Greek life at the University of South Carolina. And I think, you know, other schools have this too, like uh, University of Virginia, whereas like the Greek life is kind of sometimes connected to like secret societies or different kind of institutional power, things like that kind of, it's very different. So at, at University of South Carolina, the Greek life kind of controls everything and same at University of Alabama, like at University of Alabama. The machine, right? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm from Birmingham. I'm yeah, from Birmingham. Okay. And I was in a fraternity in this at a school in Alabama, but not UA. Oh. oh, no. So you know all about what I'm talking about then with the machine. I know all about the machine. Yeah. I know all of the things you're talking about. I just want my listeners to hear it. But okay. you're much more credible than me right now. Let's oh. hear it. Um, and so, so University of South Carolina, like Greek life kind of controls everything. Like it can, it controls like your social circles, um, people from like certain families, like go into certain sororities or fraternities. That's just this really weird, like kind of way of living. And so I was not, um, I didn't like reaffiliate with my sorority when I, because I was only there for like a year and it was so different. I wasn't sure I wanted to be a part of it, but it just kind of controlled all aspects of, of the life there at, at South Carolina. And it was weird because it was like connected to like prestige and like power and then maybe also like socioeconomic status. And so I noticed like fraternity members were wearing um, shirts with like Robert E. Lee on them, the Confederate battle flag. And I was like, huh, like this is strange why are people doing this? And so I, it's funny because that like influenced my research later in life, but I was like, why are these people doing this? And so then I did research and I was like, well, you know, they, they celebrated Robert E. Lee's birthday, um, the convivium, right? Is that, yes, the convivium. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And just other kind of, um, and I talk about this in, in other in some presentations I've done, even like the houses themselves are, they kind of like mirror plantations. It's just like uh, South Carolina, they have a Greek village where like all of the, the, the houses are there. And it's just this strange kind of place. Uh, 
yeah. And so I, and I just noticed, like, why are these people celebrating Robert E. Lee or like, what is the convivium or why are they having parties to celebrate these things? And so I wanted to kind of understand that uh, on a deeper level, which I was able to do with the PhD. And so through my time there and through some people I knew and whatnot, I was able to kind of get kind of an insider kind of experience with some of these groups. Um, And again, this was before I even knew I was going to do the PhD, but thinking about, I was like, well, wow, this is just strange. Like I've never seen like t-shirts with Robert E. Lee or these parties and like, what is it? Why? And so then uh, a book chapter I have coming out is I look at uh, the, the KA event of the old South balls. Um, this is like a cotillion ball, right? Yeah. Okay. So, yes. And so it's, uh, so people go and they, they have some sanctions on this event now, but so women would dress in uh, antebellum style dresses and sometimes the, the male members would wear the Confederate grays, uh, the uniform, uh, different things like that. So they would basically like reenact this whole old South ball, like a dance. And so I just thought that was so strange and like peculiar. And it's like, this is really, I want to look at this like rhetorically. And so it was just strange. And so I started doing research and they actually banned Old South as I was doing my dissertation or around that time. And so I was able to like kind of look to see like the pushback as to what people were saying, but there's ways around it. So like people are still doing Old South, but they have called it like different names. And I think people are still kind of dressing up, but it just seemed odd to me, like why, this idea of like reproducing this like antebellum narrative and like reproducing all of the outfits and the, this idea of like Southern grandeur and like hospitality. And of course, we know it wasn't hospitable for everyone. Um, It was just this weird like reproduction of something that never really existed in the first place, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I, I I think I'm asking a question I know the answer to, but Based on your experiences, are the fraternities racially integrated at the University of South Carolina? Uh, no. And so but, I uh, say yes, no. And so I I was never able to go to Olds. I, I don't think I would have gone anyway. I, But I, I might have been invited and not known what it was. But like I just am kind of from a different mindset. So I, I have never been to an Old South. But when I started doing my research, um, you know, I would ask, you know, if you look at the KA website, they do have um, some diversity on the website, but that doesn't reflect necessarily. Um, and I can't speak for all chapters of Kappa Alpha. Um, and just quickly, I should say that Kappa Alpha, the spiritual founder of that fraternity is Robert E. Lee. I should probably clarify that. And Yeah, okay. That makes it. I didn't know that. That's why this is yeah. your focus. Okay. Yes. This makes and a lot of sense. And I will say that from my and I don't mean to talk to take away from, oh. from your your what you're saying, but I will say that from my experiences, there's there's little to no diversity in these these fraternities in the South that rely on these old South traditions. So I just wanted to throw that in there since you said yeah. from no, I think that makes sense. And like anytime I'd ask someone like you or other people, they usually can like qualify that and say, well, there's not a lot of diversity within those fraternities. And, and so, yeah, so Kappa Alpha was founded by Robert E. Lee. And that's, that's why I started using it in the first place. And that's why, you know, they have the t-shirts and an old South. And so it was founded at, um, at Washington and Lee. Uh, and so anyways, and so the, you know, their spiritual founder is uh, someone called Samuel Zenis Amen. Uh, or no, he was the practical founder and then Robert E. Lee was kind of their spiritual founder. And so uh, if you look, I don't, I didn't have access to a lot of this, but what I could find online in terms of like rituals and things like that, they rely on some aspects from like secret societies and and different things from, if you think about like UVA or Washington and Lee, there's uh, just old like secret stuff there and it's just this weird kind of like I'm thinking like skull and bone stuff right (laughs) yeah like definitely and so there's a lot of you know socioeconomic thing you know like power and it's just this it's a interesting um and I don't and 
I tell my students to like where I teach now, there's not fraternity members, but we don't, we don't have Greek life here, but I have to be careful too, like not to like demonize every member of K because then the students at, like at Clemson, you know, I, if I'm teaching students, I don't want to push all the students away. So I kind of had to be yeah. careful. If that's, that makes sense. that's that, that I've, that's, I didn't think about that. That sounds like sometimes uh, uh, some tension for sure. Yeah. And like a lot of times, and I talk about this too in the research, like these, their dad was in KA, their grandfather, it's a family thing. And so a lot of these young men, they're not necessarily aware, like they're aware, but they, it's kind of like, oh, my dad did this. And then like, well, I should do it too. But then, you know, what I th- some students are able to kind of think about things like, well, why are we repro- reproducing this? Or like, why are we using this symbol? Or like, how does my action, how do my actions impact someone else? Or like, how does my use of the symbol impact someone else? And so it's difficult to talk about things like this in the classroom because you have to frame it carefully. But so I think a lot of the young men are, they, they do have the capability to think about maybe the use of the flag or the use of, of this event. And they can kind of um, think about things differently. And in the book chapter I have coming out, I do reference one um, man who did kind of reckon, he was a, a former member of KA and he did kind of have this reckoning about some of the activities and the symbols and kind of what what happened when he was involved. So Yeah, I was in Greek life. I think I mentioned that earlier. So, um, and, and I, I don't know if I had like a reckoning or an awakening, Um well, yeah, I guess I did, but this isn't about me. But like from my own experience, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know how to, how to get over that hump. Um, but like from my own experiences, like being in a fraternity, it's not necessarily like I would be lying if I didn't say like I have friends that I talk to every day that I met through that social fraternity. But I also on the flip side of that of those friendships is like recognition like personal and public for myself that I was in the room when a group of white men decided not to give a fraternity bid to a black man because he was black and none of the other fraternities at my school had racially integrated yet right so I think that that's really interesting when you think about the tension of teaching students and and me as a student and now as like as 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 someone who who lived that and is kind of like going on a little bit of a roller coaster ride in my head, you know, just talking to you based on my own experiences. Um, Fascinating research, important research, right? Um, Yeah. And I mean, I always recognize my own positionality and my own, you know, privilege as a white female, but uh, well, not, but but I I always do that. And, uh, you know, thinking about that, that's why I chose to really look at white supremacy because, it's something I felt, you know, I wasn't like co-opting something from someone else. That's something that it's white supremacy. And so that's kind of why I chose to, to look at it. Uh, And yeah, and it's not always the easiest topic to address in a classroom or to teach, but I guess I've never really picked easy things or like taken the easy way. And so it's, uh, well, you're a rhetorician. (laughs) I know. Yeah. And, um, and I think at C's, yes, it was at C's. I had, well, I was uh, presenting with, you know, my panel and I was talking sim- uh, similarly to what we were just talking about with students and someone asked me, they were like, well, I don't think they listened to my presentation, but they were like, well, don't you worry that you're giving a platform to these fraternity members that might be like white supremacist. Um, but no, I mean, like I, I carefully construct the classroom. I use, um, like Bakhtin's idea of the dialogic. Uh, and I try to elevate those narratives that the students might not be familiar with. And so certainly I would never give a platform to anything like what, you know, I, that's not the goal. But I think anytime that you, anytime people hear words like Confederate battle flag or white supremacy there, it's such a loaded and contested word that people might think differently. You know what I mean? Or it's like they're, is there more yeah, yeah, likely yeah. to like critique what I'm doing? And, and just thinking about like rhetorical listening, like that's why you should really listen to what people are saying and understand. And so I have to be careful with like my titles or what I label things. And I always have to like say very specifically from the get go, like what I'm trying to do and my intentions. And this is what I'm doing. This is why I study white supremacy. And so 
yeah, so like rhetorical listening, something else I talk about in the dissertation um, is really important in the classroom, I think, when you are covering really sensitive topics. You got, do you have yeah. any other tips for bringing in sensitive topics related to white supremacy and, and for social fraternities and sororities into the classroom? Well, I, well, today was my first day of teaching my confronting racism class, but it's never, I guess, super easy, but I just try to be really straightforward with my students and stress to them the importance of like kindness and understanding, but also like you have to it's you have to like think about things critically think about what you've done in the past or like why we do things we do or like the idea of tradition something else I talk about in my dissertation is you know what is tradition um you know we have to kind of look at traditions too and see like thinking about the fraternity and the tradition of this dance that they would have like you kind of have to think about why you're doing things and how that impacts others and I think the students where I am now at Barry they they're receptive to thinking about how their actions impact other people, right? And so I think if you can just get students to understand that, uh, I don't know if I have like a tip or like anything that's like sure, you know, to get to yeah. make it easier, but I was just like not being afraid to make mistakes yourself and like understand that, you know, as a white female that I come from a level of privilege and that you know, I'm doing the best I can. I'm constantly learning um, and trying to refine my own ways of thinking and, and being and knowing in the world and recognizing my own um, kind of connection to maybe some of these things and how we can constantly learn to like overcome that. And so I guess it's just a combination of like practice self-learning and and working, doing that with the students as well. Thanks so much, Whitney. If uh, If you want to talk off air or in the in the future about uh, fraternity rituals yeah. and white supremacy we certainly can thanks so much for com- uh, joining me today oh thank you so much it was a pleasure have a good day enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Whitney Jordan Adams. Don't forget to submit your nomination for the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award. The TBR Podcast Emerging Scholar Award highlights graduate students who make significant contributions to rhetoric, composition, and communications in their teaching, service, scholarship, and commitment to diversity and inclusion. The TBR Podcast Emerging Scholar Award comes with a financial prize of $100. To be eligible for this award, nominees must be enrolled in a graduate program in rhetoric, composition, communications, or a related field during the 2020-2021 academic year. Exhibit effective teaching strategies in the rhetoric, composition, and communications classroom. Demonstrate a commitment to diversity and inclusion in the community and in the classroom. Contribute to the development of the field through service to their department, institution, and the larger academic community. Advance critical conversations and the disciplines through the publication of scholarship, refereed, non-refereed, open access, and digital works. To nominate someone for this award, Submit an email with your name, institutional affiliation, and a 200-word bio and CV as a single PDF to thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. Explain in the 200-word bio how you or your nominee meet the above criteria. Use the subject line, Emerging Scholar Award. Nominations are accepted until May 15, 2021, and self-nominations are welcome. For more information about the TBR podcast Emerging Scholar Award, please reach out. You can email us at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com or visit the Big Rhetorical Podcast website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. I want to thank everyone who has donated so far to the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award. I'm serious. We get nominations every week. 
So make sure you get yours in and donate to our nonprofit if you can. That information is pinned to our Twitter page at the Big Red. And don't forget, our second annual Big Rhetorical Podcast Carnival is coming up in August. The carnival already has more participating podcasts than in our inaugural year, and we're going to add more. Remember, our podcast carnival theme is contending with misinformation in the classroom and the community. We hope to announce our keynote speaker before the end of season four. You can find more information about the Big Rhetorical Podcast at our website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. Reach out to us and leave us a five-star rating and write a review to help us enhance visibility on podcast platforms. Until next time, always be listening rhetorically. Music for this week's podcast is brought to you by Corey Anchors, co-founder and chief creative honcho at Hey Buddy Creative Collective. Check them out on Insta at HeyBuddyCC or HeyBuddyCC.com. Kesta and David Hillowitz. <laughs>